Hello everyone, welcome back to the Adventures of Indiana Jim for another episode of Indiana Jim and the Writing Crusade. So this was something that I thought about recently. Um, by the way, I have not finished the book uh, since my last Writing Crusade daily, as is my typical behavior. Um, other things came up that I wanted to do. <laughs> and uh, one of those things that I have not done is, is finish that novel. And I'm wondering, is it because, is there resistance, like I mentioned last time, because I'm afraid of ending it? Because I don't want to end it? I don't know about that, but I have really enjoyed playing a new game that came out, Apex Legends. Um, and, and video games are always my, uh, <laughs> my big bugaboo, my big lack of self-discipline uh, area. So definitely have to work on that. Anyway, for today's Writing Crusade Daily, the topic is self-editing. And I saw this, the um, one of the podcasts that I subscribe to is the uh, Ask Ally, A-L-L-I, which is um, the, I thought, Alliance for Independent Authors, I believe is what it's called. And, yeah, that's correct. And, yeah, the Alliance of Independent Authors. AllianceIndependentAuthors.org, the Ask Ally podcast, and there was a recent episode about how to self-edit a book featuring Orna Ross and Tim Lewis. And I didn't listen to the whole thing because it doesn't fit my paradigm of self-editing. It doesn't fit the concept of cycling, which is something that I've learned from Dean Wesley Smith and something I'm trying to put into practice now. Basically, the idea is write what you write, and then the next day you go back, you look at it, make any tweaks or adjustments, nothing major, you know, you still want your creative voice to be your creative voice, correct any spelling errors um, to make sure everything feels like it's flowing good, and then and then you continue on from there, and, you, and what he does is he cycles back repeatedly, so that by the time he's done, he's, it's the effect of having done more than one draft. So... It, it didn't quite fit my, my paradigm. But one of the interesting things that, that, that I thought about was, you know, one of the adages that we like to, to cling to or say as writers is to, first of all, there's write what you know. But there's also, you hear a lot of authors say that, well, no one was writing what I wanted to read, so I wrote what I wanted to read. So we first write... We write what we want to write because it's what we want to read. We're writing the kinds of stories that we wish other people were telling. Okay, that's number one. But then, somewhere along the way, there's this shift in how we approach it. We write what we want to read, but then we edit what someone else says we ought to write. Does that make sense? We're worried about someone else liking that book. But if you're writing what you want to write, then shouldn't it be what you want to read? Shouldn't you look at that book and say, is this a story that interests me? Do I like this? Is this fun for me? Do I enjoy this? If the answer is yes, then you don't really need to make any wholesale changes. At least I wouldn't think you'd have to. You have written what you wanted to read, you read it back, 
I enjoy this. This is fun. This is a story I like. Keep it the way it is. Don't automatically assume that you have to find someone else with an opinion to tell you, to validate for you, yes, you wrote a good story because I like it. Well, there's, there's two sides of this now. Do you suppose that readers will like it? That's hard to say. The only way to know for sure is to put it out there. So we get bogged down in the myths because we go, oh, will an agent like this book? I don't care if an agent likes this book. Will a publisher like this book? I don't care if a publisher likes the book. Do I like the book? Does it read like a good story? If the answer is yes, then you can bet 100% that there are other readers out there that will like the book. Now, you can't say how many. You can't say it's going to be a, an Amazon bestseller or a New York Times bestseller. You can't dictate how much market share your book will grasp. You, know. you can't dictate how well it will sell. Now, if your desire is to be traditionally published, then you have the added burden of worrying about whether or not someone else will like this book. And to me, if I'm worried about whether or not someone else will like the book, this is part of why there's the reasoning why it was so good for me and so healthy for me to cancel the publishing agreement with GrailQuest. Because I started to worry about whether or not the publisher or the editor would like the book. And I realized I didn't care whether they liked the book or not. I like the book. And if I like the ending, it's my ending, and that's the ending that it's going to have. And I don't care whether anyone else likes the book. Now, if you want to have an agent represent you, that's fine. If you want to have an agent who is not a lawyer, who does not practice law, who you want to negotiate a legally binding contractual agreement for you, that's your business. And if you have an agent interpreting contracts for you, we are dangerously close to an unlicensed person practicing law. And I think that the whole agency arrangement may be in trouble down the road if anybody in Washington or anybody in any state attorney's general office cared about that. Which, of course, you would imagine that most of that would probably be practiced in New York State or that would be prosecuted in New York State. And I really don't think that a New York attorney general is going to be interested in taking on the publishing industry, which, you know, basically bankrolls uh, 80% of the wait staff in New York City. So... There's that. Um, <laughs> so anyway, when it comes to self-editing your book, that's where we get into trouble. Is we start doubting our own storytelling instincts. We start doubting our storytelling skill. We start saying, oh, will anybody like this? We start making qualitative judgments about our prose based on an imagined taste standard from an imagined person. I mean, it's really convoluted when you actually sit there and think about the mental gymnastics that we writers go through very, very quickly to determine whether a part of our book is good or not. 
is 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 we have to imagine we have to imagine some editor we have to imagine some reader with a different taste from our own determining predetermining whether or not this section of the book or this scene in the book or this sentence in the book or this word right here doesn't meet with this imaginary arbitrary taste standard and taste is not objective taste is vastly subjective so we're trying to standardize subjectivity we're we're trying to standardize imagined subjectivity from a person we can't possibly speak for and the more i think about this the more it hurts my brain thinking back to the to where i you know fell into the myths so long ago because i knew nothing about the writing business or the publishing business or, or the industry or anything like that trying to th- imagine try, thinking about how ridiculous that line of thinking is and we all we all fall right into it we all do it automatically it seems because we've been trained to think according to the myths so anyway if there were any encouragement i were to give you would be this and, and the the writing crusade is all about the independent journey if you long for that traditional publishing validation then god bless you but this isn't the show for you i could give a rat's behind about the traditional publishing business or industry i don't care it's a dinosaur it's going to go the way of the dodo if it was six feet under it would be pushing up the daisies you know you go watch the monty python sketch with the parrot and just instead of parrot, say publishing industry. <laughs> it's a dead publishing industry. No, look at the beautiful plumage. Yeah, if you want the beautiful plumage of a New York publisher giving you the beautiful plumage of a book cover that you didn't have to pay for, well, congratulations, but you done already paid for it. You just paid for it in all the money that you're not going to get for it. Never mind the 15% for life of the copyright that you just gave that agent and that agent's children and that agent's grandchildren. Congratulations. You just had the agent's family move into your house and take part of your inheritance. Good work. Sorry if you don't like that. I don't care. This is my show. (laughs) So you don't have to like it, but that's essentially what you just did. You invited your agent's grandchildren uh, into your will, basically. Because it's your life plus 50 or your life plus 70. I don't even know anymore. But that's a long time. Heck, your agent's great-grandchildren will be benefiting, benefiting from your contract. Thank you very much. If you manage to stay published longer than five years uh, because you know your f- first book sold a certain number of copies and so your second book will have fewer copies made, which means it will sell fewer copies, which means your third book may or may not even get a shot at being published. And if it does, it will make even less. And you will have just given away, basically probably given away your intellectual property rights to that publisher on a dead product that you can't even do anything with. So congratulations for that too. These are the kinds of considerations you have to think about. You know, do you want at best, you know, you want 500, uh, what is it, five, like $500 now advances are going for? Maybe $1,000 when 
you know, to try to sell thousands when all you have to do is sell a couple hundred to make that yourself? I mean, think about it. The only reason to me that makes sense for someone to pursue a traditional publishing agreement is because you think that's going to put you in front of more eyeballs. It might if someone in the bookstore actually picks up your book. If the bookstore actually stocks your book. If the bookstore manages to have an attractive display. If your spine happens to be attractive enough for someone to pick up off the shelf. There's so many things that have to fall into place. It's no wonder that traditional publishing now is considered to be like a lottery. There are so many variables that have to fall into place. Oh, well, I'm concerned about discoverability, and the best place to discover, to discover books is in a bookstore. Bull crap it is. I'm sorry, but Amazon's traffic is a lot more significant than Barnes & Noble's or Borders or Books A Million. And if, you're, if your book's not a front-facing kind of deal, if you're not James Patterson or Tom Clancy or one of these deals, and you know, it's not a front-facing book, good luck. If it's not a corner display or an end cap display, good luck. If it's on a bargain table, it's too late. Because, you, you know, that's already, uh, that's already way too late for a book to gain any traction if it's on the bargain table. And guess what? Your career's probably on the bargain table too. Man, I'm just feeling like this sounds mean. But, I, you know... I need I need to stop making a podcast and go write. I need I need to do other things. So <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, best of luck to you if you enjoy being on the uh, independent author journey, then this is the podcast for you. We will talk about uh, explore and discuss all of the things uh, that make an independent writing career an independent publishing career one of those things that we have to talk about is how to sit down and actually work on the book instead of play video games you know so so there is that anyway that's it for this episode of the writing crusade almost darn near not quite daily and i'm indiana jim go write <laughs>